Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Julia Borston. As CNBC's senior media and tech correspondent, Julia has spent her career interviewing CEOs and entrepreneurs. And over the course of 20 years as a business reporter, she has seen some fascinating patterns emerge. For her new book, When Women Lead, Julia interviewed hundreds of female leaders, including me. She found that these women often shared traits that have been traditionally undervalued in leadership roles. Three of the big ones are vulnerability, empathy, and gratitude. I talked to Julia about why she thinks we all have the power to unlock these traits, even if you don't happen to be a business leader yourself. So let's get to my conversation with Julia Borston. Hello. Oh, how the tables have turned, girl. (laughs) How are you? I'm so good. How are you? I'm good. I'm so grateful to get to include your story in my book. And everyone has been loving it so much to read about this powerhouse leader and getting a little bit of an insight into that. Did you read your section? I have read my section. I've read many sections and it's fantastic. It was fascinating to me because I've never even really taken a lot of time to contemplate Like, what does it mean to be a woman in a leadership position? How do we differ from men? How is the processing different? How are the insecurities different? How are the outcomes different? So it's just a beautiful, very well-researched piece of work, obviously. I wouldn't expect anything less from you. So you've been an on-air reporter at CNBC for since 2006. Is that true? Yes, 16 years, more than 16 years. Isn't that crazy? And even though it's been the same job, I mean, it's amazing to think I've been in a job for 16 years, but the job itself has changed so much, right? I started off covering just media 
And then media led to social media because Facebook was this nascent thing. I remember my brother was in college at the time and he was on Facebook and telling me about, I was like, guys, we got to be covering this as a business. And then social media led to more tech stuff. And so I feel like at CNBC, my job has changed so much. The medium has changed so much. We're doing so much now on digital as well that I feel like it's felt like many, many jobs within this one career. And then also I've been able to be entrepreneurial within CNBC. And I created this thing called the Disruptor 50 list, yes. which, is, which has been so much fun. It's, I mean, I'm always fascinated by entrepreneurs. As you know, I'm fascinated by entrepreneurs. I think the willingness to take risks and try to do things differently is so inspiring to me. And also just, just fascinating. Like what, it, what it enables people to try to do things differently, to want to do things differently. So anyways, the Disruptor 50 list is the 50 fastest growing private companies. I created it about 10 years ago to give our viewers who are focused mostly on big public companies a, an insight, sort of a, a window into these private companies before they go public. So they're either going to be the giants of tomorrow or they're disrupting the mass of companies already. And how did you even start in this profession? Were you always drawn to business? So I was not drawn to business. I majored in history in college. I took the most esoteric classes on art history, and I was really interested in international relations. I studied French and Italian. I was not into business, but I always did the newspaper. So I did the newspaper in high school. I did the newspaper in college. I loved the community of hanging out with my fellow editors and working on op-eds and sort of having your finger on the pulse of what was going on in the school, which feels like a million miles away from what I'm doing now, but it was just something I always did. And so when I was graduating college, I actually was planning on going to grad school in international relations at London School of Economics. I'd gotten in and then I thought, wait, I've been in school forever. I'm going to defer a year and go maybe work in magazines. All my friends are moving to New York. It'd be fun to work in New York for a year in magazines. And I applied to dozens of magazines. And the best offer I got was at Fortune Magazine. I didn't know anything about business. I'll admit I had not even taken Econ 101. It just wasn't something that was interesting to me. And I applied and they gave me, they were hiring at the time. This They were actually, I was hired right before the market started to crash in 2000. And when they offered me the job, they said, we believe that you could teach journalists about business, but it's really hard to teach a business person how to write. So we'd rather train you on the business stuff. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a year. And I had a business school boot camp. I had all these amazing mentors who taught me how to like read SEC documents, how to understand analyst reports. And it was awesome. And I found it really fascinating. I thought business news was a great way to tell serious stories because so much of news at the time was getting really fluffy and not about like core substantive issues. And business news is a lens where you can talk about the people and companies that are having a massive impact on the world. Yeah. I think it was always like the first section that I always read of the newspaper because the business news is so reflective of the larger culture, what's happening psychologically, socioeconomically. I always found that it personally drew me in a ton. And so many fascinating characters and you know these personalities who are creating these game-changing businesses. And that's what I was drawn to at Fortune Magazine. And then they put me on TV. They put me on CNN, which was at the time owned by the same company as Fortune. And I didn't get nervous, which was my superpower. So, wow. they, so they had me back. And that turned into a full-time job at CNBC about six years after I started at Fortune. So you, know, you talk about imposter syndrome in the book for women. 
did you experience any of that? Like being a journalist who had to catch up on, you know, have this kind of like mini MBA and interviewing these super high powered guys who, you know, went to Harvard Business School and, you know, were running public companies. How did that Delta feel to you? And how did you surmount that? So much imposter syndrome, so much panic and anxiety. I remember I had these really ugly boxy suits and I started wearing glasses, which I didn't really need. And I was like, like there were glasses that I'd gone for like distance and movies and like driving at night. And I started wearing the glasses all the time because I thought I would be taken more seriously. And I mean, I was 21 years old when I started at Fortune and I had no idea what I was doing. And I was so nervous but the way I responded to that was by over-preparing. So I found that instead of, you know, instead of letting myself like have these panic attacks and in interviews, if I totally over-prepared, then I could arm myself with whatever defenses I needed when I was going to be questioned by some of these older men. And I remember these guys and yes, older CEOs, they would say to me things like, how could you possibly know what you're talking about? Like you're telling me you think that my company is struggling. Like, what do you know about business? And so I would get these comments. So after each of these interviews and keep in mind, I started just as the market was cratering in 2000, like everyone's business was struggling. But when I would push these men on their challenges, they would they would push back. And I would think, wait a second, I, I did my homework. So I just started like really overdoing it in the homework department. And I found like that was the thing that would make me feel confident. And if I started feeling nervous, I'd be like, okay, I just need to like go home tonight and read a bunch of stuff and go over my questions and go over my research. And if I could just really invest in the homework, then I will have ammunition when these guys come at me and tell me I don't know what I'm doing. Who were some of your mentors? As I imagine, you know, it's like you have to interview the CEO of GE or whatever. You're 21. Who are you calling? So I had this amazing editor. His name is Andy Serwer. He went on to become editor-in-chief of Fortune Magazine. He now runs Yahoo Finance. And, you know, he has two daughters. And I always feel like he treated me the way he would want someone to treat one of his daughters. And he kept on telling me, like, just go do it. And I remember him saying, like, don't worry about doing TV. Like, no one really knows what they're doing all the time. Like you have to do things where you don't feel comfortable if you're going to succeed in this world. And he was just just like, get out of your comfort zone. Don't worry about over-preparing all the time. And he, he saw that I was like, found this crutch in over-preparing. And he's like, but sometimes you just really need to push yourself out of your comfort zone. And he was an amazing mentor to me. And then there is this older woman at CNBC who's like the, the grand dame of business journalism, Carol Loomis. And she was best friends with Warren Buffett and wrote the annual reports for Berkshire <laughs> Hathaway. And I was so intimidated by her, but I remember her sitting me down. She had these stacks of annual reports and she would teach me like what to look for in them. And I was terrified, but so grateful to be getting this info from her. That's so generous. I mean, so generous. Really, I don't think mentors at the time realize the impact that they're making. I mean, maybe they do, but I don't know if they fully can process and absorb like the impact, the lasting impact that they make when somebody you respect sits down and takes the time to teach you something and 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 not make you feel embarrassed about your questions. A hundred percent. I mean, and it was life changing. And these moments, you know, fifteen minutes with Carol Loomis might give me so much confidence in a in a terrifying interview and make it less terrifying. I love it. I want to go back to something you touched on when we first started speaking. You said you're very inspired by entrepreneurs, and I really feel that in the book, right? Because in in your approach to to speaking to so many entrepreneurs. 
But I just wanted to double click on that. Like, what is it exactly? You said they're pushing boundaries or they're thinking about things in, in new ways. But what, what about that kind of lights your fire? So, you know, in business, there are these established giants, like you mentioned GE, but like companies like GE that have been building widgets for so long. And in this tech boom we saw in the early 2000s, everything started to change. And we saw that these giants had emerged out of someone's garage just a couple of years earlier. There's this tremendous potential for technology to really change the world. I mean, I think of the way I live my life now, between getting around with Uber or Lyft, everything's on my iPhone, which certainly didn't exist 20 years ago, you know, ordering things for overnight delivery on Amazon. I mean, my life is totally different because of the tech companies that have risen since the early 2000s. So when I interview people who are entrepreneurs, I see individuals who know that they have an idea that is worth them risking their lives on effectively. And also that they see an opportunity to just do something differently. It's so easy for people just to be cogs in a machine and, and play their role in something that's already been established, but to create something entirely new, which you have done and think of a different way of doing things like talk about being a disruptor. I mean, it's being an inventor really and creating new ideas. And I just think that it's like in a lot of ways, like why I love art, like the inspiration, the idea of doing something different and then also the courage to actually go forward with it. Cause there are so many roadblocks as you well know, but so it's like the combination of the idea the courage and then the execution. I mean, that's amazing. I'm so inspired. I mean, I'm so risk averse. I've been in the same company for 16 years. So of course it's inspiring to me. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. I'm curious about, so when you're, you know, you're, you're reporting, the landscape is really changing. All of these tech entrepreneurs are coming onto the scene and creating these billion dollar companies very quickly. What was it like for the incumbents you know, these old school leaders who had gotten to where they had gotten by following a very similar path. Like what, what was it like for them? And what was it like culturally to kind of watch all of this technology happen and, and kind of disintermediate that whole layer of, you know, business school and working your way up a corporate ladder? What did that feel like at the time? I mean, it felt like this just transformation of the whole business landscape. And what I think was so interesting about focusing on these disruptors is it's not like they're just doing their own thing over here, whether it's an Uber or an Airbnb or a Meta, Facebook, or now Twitter, which we're talking about all the time. These companies have massive impact on like day-to-day -day life. Yeah. They're dealing with like regulators trying to 
frantically catch up with what they're doing. And then all the giants, like if you're a Hilton, you're paying attention to what Airbnb is doing. If you're a car rental company, if you're a Hertz, you're watching out for the impact of Uber. So all of the giants have had to shift. You know, at CNBC, we have a conference called Evolve. And I really think that that's what's happening is like the innovators are disrupting. The incumbents have to evolve. Mm -hmm. You have to evolve in order to survive. There's no standing still. It's just not an option anymore because everything moves so quickly thanks to this power of technology. And I imagine there were certain CEOs who kind of couldn't keep up with the that agility and new way. Yeah, there are some companies that just went away. It's interesting, like looking at like recession fears right now and this idea that whatever companies emerge from this economic instability that we're dealing right now, these companies could be the giants of the next generation. And the fact that like PayPal and Google and these companies from like Web 1.0 emerge so strong, um, I think sometimes like economic instability is you know, like the the weak companies get weeded out, but those companies that have real legs have potential to be transformative over the long run. And then you look like, it's funny, I drove by a, a building in LA the other day that I remember used to be a blockbuster. I was like, wow, that used to be a blockbuster. Now it's a BevMo. And I was like, is BevMo going to stick around or will some like, you know, boozedelivery.com replace it. But it was just, it's just amazing. Like I forgot about Blockbuster until I was like, oh, I remember that was a Blockbuster. But there's like a whole generation of companies like that. I mean, look at department stores and how they've struggled in the wake of online retail. So I think like it's the company, there are companies that disappear like Blockbusters. There are those like Nordstrom that are rushing to adapt this like instant delivery and having all these other features at the stores. And then there are the companies that are really trying to transform to keep up like Walmart, you know, that's a company that's really tried to put its digital platform first and people still need to go into stores for a lot of things. So I think it's like this new landscape, everything's changing and everyone needs to constantly be moving to keep up. Have you given any thought to, you know, what are the fundamental principles or tenets of a company that will survive another, you know, let's say this is a big recession. Some people are saying it's not going to be so bad. Some people are going to say it's years. I think we can agree that we don't necessarily know. Yes, we do not know. But, you know, having done this for a while and by pattern recognition and talking about web 1.0, what are those aspects of a company that you think they, you know, help pull through something like this? Well, interestingly, and one reason I'm optimistic about female leadership is I think that the characteristics of female leaders and their companies are those that will survive and thrive. For instance, in my book, I write a lot about the importance of adaptability and having a high adaptability quotient. Like we've talked about IQ and EQ, but like adaptability is key. And this idea of like constantly reading data, not getting stuck in your own ego. Oh, I made a plan two years ago. I really want to stick with this plan. I invested so much in this plan, but saying, okay, let's read the data. Things are shifting. Let me try to read the data to look around corners and understand what changes I need to make now decisively that are going to pay off over the long run. So I think adaptability. I also think long-term planning. It's so easy when things are so volatile and crazy in the day-to-day, especially for public companies, they're, they're focused on quarterly results. But I think that companies are going to have volatility, but those that really are investing for the long-term, that's going to pay off. There's some really interesting data I write about in my book about the importance of gratitude And I was fascinated by this data, but the studies have found that 
A, women enjoy practicing gratitude and practice gratitude more frequently than men. And I think there's some some sense that maybe men feel uncomfortable. They don't want to feel like they owe anyone anything. This is, of course, all socialized. Men should feel gratitude. It's a wonderful thing to experience gratitude. But if you practice gratitude and like write about something that you feel grateful about, you're more likely to make a decision with a long-term payoff. And I think that's amazing. It's fascinating. We should all be practicing gratitude all the time so we can focus more on these sort of long-term goals. So yeah. that's another thing that I think will be really important for navigating this uncertainty. So, and, and I also think in terms of connecting with employees, we hear so much about how hard it is to manage teams, to motivate teams in these crazy times. Are we back to office? Are we not back to office? Are we hybrid? And I think for that, empathy and vulnerability and leaders admitting what they don't know, what they do know. And both of those things, I know you're really good at. (laughs) Definitely good at admitting what I don't know. (laughs) But that's a superpower. I think it's really important. And there's so much research into how admitting what you don't know really invites collaboration and makes people want to work with you because you know, they know you're not going to be bossing around about something you don't know about. You're going to say, hey, I don't know about this. Please jump in and help me out. Yeah, I just I just had that yesterday. You know, we were talking about wholesale strategy and it's like I very honest that I've learned on the job. I now know a lot about a lot of things, but there are certain things that I don't know about, you know, and I was saying to the that we were trying to make a decision about wholesale and brokers and I was like, I don't fucking know anything yeah. about wholesale. <laughs> like I could talk to you about direct to consumer e-commerce, but like you know, I'm not your girl for this. I so and I and I do think it's important and I think also what you're talking about, you know, vulnerability, agility, collaboration, these are what I like to think of like absolutely characteristic of, you know, archetypal feminine qualities, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of gender, right? But it's like these, you know, creativity, collaboration. And I think for a long time in the business world, it just was a bad fit, right? Because it was yeah. like men ruled everything and they very much had their paradigm in place. And then women came in and, you know, approximated the male archetype, right? For or a tried long- to, or tried to. Right. Like in the eighties, I always like, you know, you would always see these women in their business suits and, you know, it would be like, okay, they're really trying to break through by not necessarily, you know, by approximating the male. And now I feel like, we really are starting to see women fully embody these like archetypal qualities. And this is what this whole book is about, right? Like the benefit of doing that. So how did this idea come to you? Why did you want to write the book? Like, tell me about a little bit about the inception of the process and the idea. But, but yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think women are now owning their core characteristics and realizing that those core characteristics are superpowers and they don't need to fit themselves into that old box, which by the way, I don't think fits anyone anymore. And the reason I'm so optimistic is that I think the pandemic has made it very clear that these qualities, these sort of more stereotypical feminine leadership qualities are things that everyone needs to be doing right now. You cannot get away with not being empathetic right now. It is not an option. Your employees need to hear from you 
Otherwise you're, you're in big trouble. So yes, yeah, so I 100% agree. And that's why I am hopeful. But this book came about and it actually goes back to the Disruptor 50 list. Cause you know, I love talking to entrepreneurs and innovators. And I was noticing that the women in the group, as I was interviewing these CEOs, there were obviously fewer of the women, you know, female CEOs represented 8% of the fortune 500 this year. That is an all time high, 8%, all time high. But in the VC-backed tech startup space, the numbers are much worse. Right. Last year, 2% of all venture capital funding went to female founders. Down to 2%? Went from 3 to 2%. Can you believe it? Could, you, could it drop any lower? So over the past decade, about 3% of VC funding has gone to female founders. It dropped to 2% last year. A bigger chunk goes to co-ed teams. And then as of last year, 82% of all VC dollars, 82% into all male founding teams. So do you think, is there like a finite pool that VCs say, oh, we have to allocate this capital to women or people of color. And so they, their focus was on, like they, they pulled capital from women because they wanted to invest in people of color. No, the the numbers of investing in people of color last year didn't go up meaningfully. They did not. No, I mean, a, a little, there's actually been more progress so far this year, like the year to date numbers. But the numbers are still crazy. And it's not like the money shifted straight from women into people of color. It's, I think, just in the craziness, the post-pandemic uncertainty of last year, investors went with what they felt familiar with, and that is white men. And also, there are so many of these massive checks to male-led companies. So that ends up skewing things because like these massive amounts of dollars, you, you know, Adam Newman just got another $300 million this year for his company. That's, you know, very much a pre-revenue company from Andreessen Horowitz. That's a huge check. I mean, think about how that skews percentages and, you know, female founders get much smaller checks. So all of it is crazy, but I was looking at these crazy statistics and I was thinking 2% or 3%. Of course, these women who I'm interviewing seem amazing. Like they have defied so many odds to get here. So I was finding in my interviews with these women, like they were so interesting. I was curious how they had done it. They seemed to be thinking about problems in a different way. The language they used to discuss their companies felt different. And I was just struck that they, you know, not only were exceptions to the rule, but they also felt exceptional among the sea of, of companies that were more likely to be led by men. So I wanted to know, as I looked at those stats, the 2%, the 3%, the crazy numbers, I wanted to know how the women had done it. You know, I was like, how did you defy the odds? Like, it's hard enough to grow and scale a company, but like, how did you push through every single layer of, of challenge and obstacle And so I started off just wanting to tell these amazing stories. And the more I interviewed women, the more I thought I need kind of like an academic framework to explain what they're doing. Like the stories are remarkable, but it's not just anecdotes. These aren't just anecdotes. These are powerful leadership traits. We're seeing across multiple women. Seeing across multiple women. So I started like organizing the themes, you know, and there was empathy and there was gratitude and there was communal leadership. And I started organizing these things. I started talking, seeing like imposter syndrome and these things would just pop up across all these women. So I started reading academic research, explaining these leadership traits, why these are incredibly valuable leadership traits, why women are more likely to use them. And why, by the way, if men started using them, they would be more successful too. I was just started off curious. And then I went down the rabbit hole. And the more I found the more convinced I became that women have the, these amazing 
leadership traits and can really unlock them. They may not realize their leadership traits, but if they start to understand that some of these characteristics that maybe even they thought of as flaws are not flaws, they are superpowers and they can unlock them, then I, I think that we're, you know, we're off to the races here. So I was really, I was really thrilled to find all of this data and just so inspired by the stories of the women in the book. Is there a particular story from the book that kind of encapsulates this that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Oh, there are so many stories. It's, it's like it's like picking among your children. Well, I love your story, Gwyneth. So so everyone has to read your story. And I think that, you know, you struggle with so many double standards and, and lowered expectations for what you are capable of. And I just think your story is a phenomenal one. So I really want people to read it. I particularly liked, and I was curious what you thought of this part, this idea that you were criticized for monetizing your taste in a way that felt really unfair, considering the fact that David Bowie like fully monetized his identity and people told him he was a genius. So I was really impressed by your ability to like push through so much criticism and understand that your vulnerability over, especially over what you didn't know could be a superpower in business. And also that you're just going to keep doing what you're doing, no matter what the critics said. And you were right. And it worked. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I think I'm blushing. A <laughs> but there are, and there are so many other stories. I mean, the one that I keep on returning to yes. is this amazing woman, Toyin Ajayi, who's the CEO of a company called City Block Health. And the reason I love her story is because it's speaks to so many of the different ways in which women have these sort of underestimated advantages and superpowers. She is revolutionizing the healthcare system. Right now, healthcare companies get paid based on the volume of treatment. They don't get paid on the outcome of care and whether people are actually getting healthier. And she went to Stanford, she went to medical school in London, and then she found her way to Sierra Leone, where she was trying to help improve a pediatric hospital in Sierra Leone. And she realized when she was there that like, there were all these problems. People didn't trust the doctors. You know, there were, they couldn't get doctors to stay overnight because it wasn't safe. But no matter what the actual logistical problems were, she couldn't do anything until she got running water into the hospital. So she, she was like, this is ridiculous. We can't do anything if we don't have running water. So she made her list of things they want to accomplish, but first she got running water. And then she went to Boston Medical and she was, you know, she was in Boston when the best, you know, cities in the world for medical care. And she was dealing with patients who were coming back month after month after month into the emergency room, getting treated and then getting discharged. She's like, these patients are not getting healthier. We are not actually helping them. And it is so expensive for the medical system. So what she realized was like, what is the broken water system here? Like, how can we fix the water supply? And I always think about that when I'm dealing with a challenge now, I'm like, okay, like, let me take a step back what do I need to do to fix the water supply? Like, what is my kid actually upset about? <laughs> you know, why is my story not ready for air? Like, what is the fundamental underlying issue? And she had these experiences when she was interacting with patients and she found they were afraid to tell her about the lump in their chest, or they were afraid to talk about why they hadn't been to the doctor in 30 years. She said, if we could build trust, which is another trait in female leadership, by having empathy with the patients and we could shift the power dynamic away from the doctors to the patients, then we will have long-term 
big picture solutions. So that's what City Black Health does. It's based in Brooklyn. They send doctors into patients' homes. They have people who are effectively social workers helping patients with things like social services and housing because they really want to help with the big picture, getting people healthier. So between the empathy and the contextual thinking, she just encapsulates so many of the characteristics that can be so powerful for women. And she's doing it by also changing the world. And did she have particular obstacles that pertain to her being a woman? Yes. And she's a black woman. And when she was at the hospital in in Boston, she had people push back on her and and say, you seem aggressive. And she would say to them, are you saying that? Would you say the same thing if it were a white man who just said what I said? And she really questioned the system. She got a lot of pushback around that. And she, like you, was not the CEO of the company for the first couple of years. So she was, you know, she had a senior role. She was, she was, I believe, chief medical officer, but it wasn't until recently that she became CEO. Sometimes it takes us a minute to, you know, realize we can do it. <laughs> yeah, it took her a minute, but look, she, I mean, and she's an amazing story. Yeah. I just, I find it striking that, you know, here's somebody and, and, and as it pertains to me, right? Like I was an actress, then I, I changed careers and I understand absolutely why it took me a long time to build up credibility as a CEO, of course. But, you know, when you compare it with someone who went to medical school and, you know, you know, has the credentials and is still a woman and is not, you know, her respect isn't given freely. And then you take these dudes who dropped out of Stanford and are in their garage and are given, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars pre-revenue or whatever. It's just kind of interesting. It is. And what's interesting is, you know, she co-founded her company with a white man and she remembered, she told me she remembers the moment when she got the phone call from him, this idea that they'd been percolating. Do they want to go work on it together at the Google incubator? And she said it wasn't lost on her that this might be her shot and that she was not the person who was being approached by Google. And she got that this is sort of how it worked and she needed to take her shot and it all ended up working out in the end. But you know, it's, you know, she didn't feel comfortable saying, Hey, I'm only going to do this if I'm going to be a CEO. You know, it took a couple of years before she got that CEO job. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your nine to five and the five to nine plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Azra collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You know what I wanted to ask you to elaborate on, which is something you talk about is the difference between convergent and divergent thinking and these patterns that you saw in both female and male leaders So basically the idea is like, there's like the forest and the trees and men are more likely in problem solving or situations to be driving specifically for a solution. You have a problem, we're going to hone in on the solution. Let's not waste time talking about anything related. So men are more likely to drive directly to a solution. Don't waste time on unrelated things. We have a, we have a crisis. We can find a solution to it and let's just get straight to it. Women are more likely to ask about tangential things and say, hey, well, what about this other thing we were talking about last week or this thing that's related, but not totally about it? Women are more likely to, you know, what I call pulling threads from other parts of an organization or other parts of a situation and trying to paint a bigger picture of like, what does that full force look like? Mm -hmm. And so 
Um, and there's amazing data about this. And so there's also data that having a better sense of the context and having all those tangential questions explored is going to be more valuable, especially over the long run. So this is the the divergent thinking is like bringing in the and the various perspectives. Let's talk about everything before we rush to a solution. And the convergent thinking is like focusing very narrowly. So the fact that women have that instinct to ask all those unrelated questions, I know it's something that I do. My, sometimes it drives my husband crazy. And I'll be like, well, what about this other thing? I'm not in any rush to figure it out. I really want to talk about all the things. And so I think that that actually is incredibly valuable, especially talk about times of crisis or uncertainty. The more you get the big picture, the more you're going to be ready when something changes to adapt to it because you've already explored all those options. Yeah. And then you spoke about, I think the the way that female brains wire up differently to male brains like plays into this as well, right? Yes. It's fascinating because, you know, anecdotally, we can all say, yes, you know, women are thinking about lots of things at the yeah. same time. And that's why we can multitask and, you know, men can get very sort of, yeah. Right. Focused in, but yeah. And yeah, there's an amazing author who I quote on this. Her name is Barbara Annis. And she has all these theories of gender intelligence. And there are different things that women may have more of an instinct to be better at. But I think what's also so interesting about all of this stuff is that it's also socialized. Like there, 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 I'm sure there are many biological components, but there are also ways that women are taught to behave. And, you know, women are taught that it's appropriate to talk things over and over with your friends and men may not have that same experience. So I think it's a combination of the biological, but also these very sort of intense social constructs that have raised us to believe that things happen in a certain way. So then is there an importance in a co-ed team, right? If, if women are fundamentally thinking so differently in their approach? Yes. And in fact, there's data showing that co-ed teams can be the most successful because if we want to have diverse perspectives, having a male and female partner collaborate on something, you get the advantages of both ways of thinking. And ultimately, the best success is not from having a bunch of people with very similar female approaches, but having people with the most diverse approaches possible. And there's actually some amazing data and also examples in the book about how the best problem solving comes not from the person alone in the office making decisions and telling everyone what to do, but from partnerships and also from going to the people on the ground, going to people of the best sense of what is happening in that moment and getting that information and using it to make decisions. And there are also some really interesting examples of husband-wife partners in the book. And a number of the female founders in the book, they hired their husbands to work for them. Julia Hartz, right? Yeah, Julia Hartz is a perfect example. She's the founder of Eventbrite, but then also Gail Becker, the founder of Call of Power. She hired her husband. She said it would drive her crazy when people would direct questions to him and say, it was so nice that you work together. And he would say, no, I work for my wife. She founded the company. And like Insurify, the CEO of Insurify, who I write about in the first chapter, she got her husband to come work for her. During all of their pitch meetings, people would direct the questions to him. She'd be like, hello, I'm over here. I founded the company. So I think it can be frustrating, but I think there's so much value in that collaboration between different ways of thinking. Right. So to extrapolate that out, so what is the importance of, like, is there an added layer of impact when you have a racially diverse executive team on top of a gender? Yes. All of the data about racial and gender diversity shows that more racially and gender diverse teams, especially when it comes to investing, are just more successful. And I'm hopeful that even more research will come on this because it's still fairly early days in getting this research. But ultimately, 
diversity of thought, racial diversity, gender diversity, it brings in different perspectives that are good for decision-making. A, you have access to a different set of experiences. But there's also this other interesting thing that happens when you have diversity in a room. And when I was first working in this book and I had heard of a lot of this research, I assumed that the value of diversity was just those different perspectives. Everyone has their own background perspectives and access to different maybe networks and people, but there's something else about having diversity in a room. And it's that when you have an outsider come into a room that's fairly homogenous, everyone in that room is going to take a minute and reconsider their assumptions. And there is this really cool study in the book that I'm kind of obsessed with about fraternities and sororities at Northwestern. And they did this experiment where they asked the students to solve a fictional murder mystery. And they had some groups to solve it on their own. And then they had someone from the fraternity or sorority join the existing Greek group. But then when they had someone from an outside fraternity or sorority come in to help solve the problem, they solved it much, much, much more effectively. And that's not because the outsider brought the right answer, but because everyone in the room said, hey, this person doesn't speak with our same code, our same language of a fraternity or sorority. Like we better take a beat and make sure we're confident in what we're saying and reconsider our assumptions Mm -hmm. before we plow forward. And I think that's the piece that we need to remember. Diversity benefits not just because you have a new answer, but because everyone gets smarter. You touched on being underestimated, which, you know, is a topic that I I, I definitely understand. Again, as I say, like, I didn't have a provenance that would necessarily lead to me being having this job, et cetera. And so I understand where the underestimation came. But I think this is generally women on executive teams experiences all the time. When you were interviewing for the book, did you lean into this a little bit to understand like what were the moments of of underestimation? And then how did women kind of like gather themselves? And does that mean we have to prove ourselves sort of twice as much as a male colleague? Sometimes, and especially when it comes to fundraising, right? You know, especially at the early stages, investors are making bets, not on like some business plan, because sometimes that doesn't even exist yet. They're not making bets based on a track record. They're making investments based on the entrepreneur and the idea. And that's a very subjective thing. So there's some really interesting data around how when men and women get to equal in terms of investments. So investing goes like seed, then A, then B, then C. By the time a company gets to the C stage, they're pretty mature. They have a track record. They have revenue. Sometimes they're profitable. And once men and women take their companies to the C stage, then the investors bet on men and women equally, men and women founders equally. So once there's a track record, you kind of see the bias disappearing. So I feel like women do have to prove themselves more. And also it's just, it's a real pain to have to constantly be fielding questions about, I mean, one of the women, Mina Sankaran, she's an Indian immigrant. She had this amazing idea for a water filtration company, water safety company. And people would ask her like, who's your male, white male co-founder going to be? Like she didn't have one and she forged on, but just having to deal with those kinds of questions can be really discouraging and also just a massive waste of your time and emotional energy. Yeah. I, someone at my company got that question about me once from a male journalist, actually, who said like, who's the secret dude, you know, behind the curtain. What, what did they say? <laughs> it's her. They said, there's no one. It's her. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, 
it's the agility piece that you talk about is also really critical for a woman leader because we're constantly having to recover, bounce back from these, you know, misunderstandings, these projections, these misinterpretations. Misunderstanding is very generous of you. (laughs) (laughs) Condescending comments. Yeah, very much so. And I think that's, that is also an aspect of being a woman in the workplace that takes a lot of energy as well. Right. It's like this. Yeah you're, you're trying to lead, you're, you're trying to work, you're thinking about strategy, you're thinking about, you know, getting through a recession, all these things. And then at the same time, you know, you're having to think about like, how do I bounce back from this? Or what is my retort to this? Or, you know, how do I prove myself? It's kind of like, especially in, in money raising, which, you know, back in the day that, that is, for me, that was particularly painful in the early days yeah. because of everything that you're saying. And and again, like I didn't have a track record, but even once I started to get a track record, you know, it was always much more difficult for me than a lot of my kind of male counterparts. Yeah. I mean, there's so many double standards. I mean, there are literally dozens of ways women are judged more harshly in the workforce. I mean, the one that I thought was the craziest that women are judged more harshly for using humor at work. They're just, yes. I was like, that's crazy. Women are perceived as talking more than they actually do. I mean, all of these things seem so nuts. And then you have to also reckon with the fact that people are asking you these ridiculous questions. I was really fascinated by how women found resilience in those situations. Like back to my fascination with entrepreneurs and how did they not give up? You know, there are so many opportunities where, you know, for, for invest for founders to think this is not worth it. This is too hard. I'm not making enough progress, but all of them had the resilience and courage and grit to keep on going. And they each had their own way of doing it. But I think that women kind of developed the muscle of figuring out how to tune out the criticism, or as you said, sort of use it as fuel to prove them wrong. But I keep on going back to something that one of the women in the book talked about, Aya Badir. She's a Lebanese immigrant who created a tech company for kids called Little Bits. So she faced all sorts of different types of criticism. She was an immigrant. She was Lebanese. She was a woman. People would give her a really hard time about her being different from what they expected for a tech founder. And she said she thinks of bias as like remembering to wear a jacket when it's cold out. When it's cold out, you know you're going to be facing bias. You bring your jacket. You're not going to be cold. And so as long as she was prepared for it and just knew it was coming, she didn't let herself take it personally and that kept her from getting bogged down in it. So I always remember that, just like bring your jacket and it won't bother you as much. But sometimes when it's really cold out, the jacket the jacket isn't enough. But so much resilience and so much willingness to just like push through and, and have confidence in your ideas. Did you look at all, like what is the culture of women with other women in the workplace? What are you seeing? Because, you know, of course, like I, I even, I noticed this just from, you know, having grown up in the eighties and nineties in this culture of competitiveness between women. And I really feel like that has shifted a lot. I mean, it has for me completely. A hundred percent. It's really changed. There was a moment in business where I would say a couple of decades in business where there could be one woman in every room, one woman in the C-suite, one woman around a boardroom table. And the women knew that. 
And so it wasn't in their best interest to necessarily help the women behind them because they knew there was this like tokenism where they could only really be one of them. But that has really changed right now. And I'm seeing women come together and help each other in ways that I couldn't have even dreamed of 10 or 15 years ago. And there are all these amazing resources now to help women help each other. So there's Cheap, which is a network for professional women at the VP level and above. There's, you know, a lot of women are in YPO, which is very male dominated, but they're working on helping women. You know, there's an organization called The Crew, which is for women of all levels, and they have amazing programming. And the chief and the crew both have programming to help women coach each other. And they put women into these cohorts and say, the best tool you're going to have in succeeding in business is leveraging the women around you and holding each other accountable and pushing each other to succeed. And the data supports this. Groups of women are a bias neutralizing force. If you tell women stereotypes and you just ask them to perform, they will be hurt by the negative impact of those stereotypes. But if you tell them stereotypes and you put them in a group of other women, those women will help battle the negative impact of bias. And so I think all of that is really powerful. And I also think women know that the more of them that there are around a table or in a room, the more successful they will all be if they help each other out. So we've totally moved past that era of, of you know 80s and 90s sort of limited opportunity for growth. And I also think that the more women know about all of this data and the challenges they're going to face, the more they can not let it bother them. And this idea of like, you can't climb a mountain unless you know how high it is. But if you have your research done, you're going to be able to push through the bias because you know what to expect and you're perfectly armed to tackle it. So in that vein, is there data around kind of success of company or stock price and this kind of collaborative thinking? Like do women impact outcomes positively? Yes, The answer is yes. It's really interesting if you look at the performance of banks after the financial crisis of like 2008 and the banks that were led by women, these are like small regional banks, they performed better. They were more prepared. Maybe they'd been less risk-taking ahead of time. And so they just performed better. And that to me is such an interesting measure. And there is also data showing that when women become CEOs of public companies, the stock dips initially because there's so much attention on the fact that there was a female CEO appointed to this company. But over time, they outperform. So there's lots of data, whether it's private companies or public companies, showing that having more diversity, gender, race, not just in the top ranks, but also in CFOs, in the C-suite, it is beneficial for companies. And that's that's why I'm optimistic because I think that People want to make money and they're going to start realizing that if they want to succeed financially, they're going to have to invest in more women and in more diversity. Can I ask you a random, like unrelated, slightly related question? Sure. Plaguing me lately. So I'm on the board of Rent the Runway. And so I've been contemplating this a lot because what I've observed is that Wall Street has a really hard time understanding the value of businesses for women, led by women. And that misunderstanding is then reflected in the stock price, whether, you know, they're beating expectations, whether they're delivering on every single thing they said they were going to do for the quarter. And then some, you know, there are so many female led businesses, you know, there's so many of them at the moment that are for women that are having a difficult time. And- no, you're uh, you're 100 right. I mean, also look, I write about the CEOs of Stitch Fix and Rent the Runway and the Real Real in my book. Those are three examples of female founders 
who took their companies public. And those um, stock prices are hammered yeah. and I don't understand the correlation. Well, I think part of the problem, just like from a very structural standpoint, is just the timing of when they went public. They went public at a time when valuations were much higher. And right now, all of those companies have suffered. So they, I think they are part of this greater trend. And then companies like Stitch Fix and The Real Wheel, where founder CEO Katrina Lake and Julie Wainwright, both of whom I write about in the book and have amazing stories, both of them transitioned out and other leaders came in. This is a very typical thing. Founders are unlikely to run companies forever, especially once the company goes public, because it's a very different skill set to deal with investors and quarterly results and all of that. So that's not an unusual thing. But what's going on with their stocks in the wake of those management changes and also in the wake of this question of like, what is the future of the consumer? So I think that in addition to whatever bias might be part of this, I do think there is the timing of when they happen to go public because the stocks are way down and the timing does not work in their favor. And then also this overall questioning of what is the future female consumer going to look like? Is she going to want to rent her clothes rather than buy them? Are we going to go back into a some sort of lockdown this winter? I don't think so, but like that would certainly impact how people spend on clothing. Are these companies going to be more successful or less successful if consumers are grappling with inflation and don't have as much money to spend? So I think there are all of these unknowns. And these three companies, which I write about in the book, are so cutting edge in terms of revolutionizing the way retail works, revolutionizing the way women get dressed every day. And I think there are just questions about how they will fare when when and if consumers are struggling with from, you know, from economic issues or inflation. But if but if the unit economics are good and earnings are what they say, like why why isn't that reflected in the stock? I think right now the stocks are trading so much on outlook for growth. That is the thing that's hanging over every one of these stocks. What is the outlook for growth in an uncertain time? What's going to happen? But I think you're not wrong to identify these trends and the fact that these three women revolutionized retail and now their stocks are way down. But I think again, back to the long term, I believe that those companies are all playing for the long term. So, so we'll we'll see what happens. Right. So, what are your sort of takeaways for women who are in various stages of leadership or you know want to be CEOs or or want to you know be founders? Did you feel like, oh gosh, there's really a new paradigm being creative of a created of women leaders and and how we can approach things and like should we be leaning into those archetypally feminine attributes? Like, what were your takeaways that that can kind of translate for women who are in the positions of leadership right well, now? Well, I I actually think that it's more than just women in positions of leadership. You know, I I'm not a leader. I'm not running anything, but I realize that my leadership traits, which I didn't realize I had until I wrote this book, are incredibly valuable for me to get through the day, whether it's as a mom or as a journalist. And I think that we're all leaders in our own way, no matter what you're doing. And I think that we all have the opportunity to unlock our personal traits that we may have discounted. We may hate them about ourselves. I think about the women in the book who told me they were introverts, but these traits, they're not flaws. They are characteristics that we can develop into personal superpowers. And I think the more I learn about the research and the more I talk to women, I really am confident that we can all unlock these powers in ourselves. And I hope that the book sort of serves like a mirror. And as women read these inspiring stories, they identify some of these traits in themselves and understand how we all have these amazing powers. And the fact that we don't fit into a box that defined what leaders look and sound like for so long 
that's okay. And the more true we are to who we are and the more authentic we are to what we are, who we are, what we know, that's when we'll be successful over the long run. So I do think we are at a moment and it's not about trying to fit yourself into a new box. It's saying, okay, who am I? And what am I good at? What do I love doing? And how can I channel that passion and that excitement into having a positive change, whether it's at my business or it's at my nonprofit or it's a project I'm working on with a friend. We all have this this force within us that we just need to not be afraid of and figure out how to unlock. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, the permission to to do that, right? Like, yeah, because it is, it, it looks different than how it has looked in the past. And that permission to sort of connect with that different way of doing things and, and that internal power and, and to recognize the superpowers that women contain, like you talk about gratitude, vulnerability, being purpose-driven and, and identifying with that, you know, really also impacts positively. So, and the confidence, once you realize that you have these traits you don't have to copy someone else. You just have to be a better version of yourself. Like that is something we can all do. I am hopeful that women will continue to feel more and more empowered and more confident. I mean, it's so funny talking about like confidence in women and imposter syndrome. All of the studies find that employees rate their bosses who are women as doing a better job than the women rate themselves. And they rate their bosses who are men as doing a less good job than the men rate themselves. And all that tells me research after research is that women should should be more confident. Women should be more confident because what they're doing in this approach of bringing in diverse perspectives and, and, and also trying to use data to look around corners and leaning on empathy and gratitude, these things are all amazing traits. And I think that men are going to have to start copying the women. Thank you for listening to my chat with Julia Borston. Her book, When Women Lead, is out now. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.